thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and I'm glad to have you join me in this, the last episode of the series I've been doing on the rule of law. And I want to do two things today in our time together. I want to follow up on what was discussed last week about the relationship between reason and revelation in coming to know the law of God, the law of nature and of nature's God, that we might know then how to apply its fundamental precepts and principles to civil law. And and then I want us to take a, a brief look today at an example that brings this discussion of the rule of law that we've been having into more of our present proximate experience that we would be familiar with to show that these are not just dusty old precepts that have no meaning for how we act and integrate our lives with our civil government and civil laws. So with that as a bit of an introduction, you'll recall that last week we talked about the importance of reason but its limitations. Blackstone had said that if our reason were as in our first ancestor before the fall, referring of course to Adam, perfect, unclouded, not prejudiced or biased in any way, he said the talk would be easy. We would have need for no other guide than reason. And indeed, we noted that in Ecclesiastes 7.29, the scripture says that God made man upright. He He put his law uh, on man's heart. But because of the fall, man's thinking, his affections were, were altered and bent and corrupted, and thus his will, and he was now at enmity and hostile to God, thus the need for the Savior. So Blackstone said that it was therefore in the divine providences of God that he gave us revelation to help guide our reason and to confirm what our reason might say or correct what our reason might otherwise say. And upon this, he said, the law of nature and the law of revelation, all human laws are founded and cannot be deemed to contradict them. So revelation clearly was very important. And I want to follow up with that with a uh, commentary that was in a recent magazine and a quote that was taken from it and sent to me along with a question. And the quote was from Abraham Kuyper, who I've mentioned many times on our program, lived in the uh, 1800s, early 1900s, was a theologian, uh, taught theology in seminary, founded a newspaper, founded a university, founded a Christian political party in the Netherlands, became the Netherlands prime minister. And he wrote this, Neither history, nor legal science, nor philosophy of law, as far as we can judge, offers a reliable starting point for knowledge of the true, sound, eternal principles of justice. Let me repeat that again. Neither history nor legal science, nor philosophy of law, 
as far as we can judge, offers a reliable starting point for knowledge of the true, sound, eternal principles of justice. In other words, the eternal principles of justice are rooted in God. And we need revelation in order to understand the truth about God and what he has done and what he would judge truly to be just. Now, a friend of mine wrote me this. He said, well, if this is true, that would mean God's revealed word in Scripture is the starting point for all knowledge and for all principles of justice. And wanted to know what I thought about that. And I think the answer is that's absolutely what he's saying. You see, when we take the fall seriously, that the whole of man was affected and his thinking became futile, his imaginations became darkened, he became hostile to God, then we will not think rightly except to the extent that God would allow us to think rightly, which might be called in certain circles common grace, God's allowing the mind of man to think thoughts that are appropriate apart from revelation. But revelation is the only sure guide that we have to confirm what our reason might tell us or to reject what our reason might tell us. You see, we have to take seriously the principle in Romans eleven thirty six that all things are from God, through God, and directed to God. Because of the fall, we're not directed to God anymore. And so it would only be from God, through God, that we would be directed toward God. And that's why he gave us revelation. In other words, we can't think rightly about ourselves unless we know how to think rightly about God because we've been made in God's image. So how can we know what the image is supposed to look like and do as the image bearer tasked by God to continue filling and forming his creation unless we know who God is and what his purposes are? As Dr. George Grant has said, and I've quoted it many times, he said it at our Restoring the Vision seminar, he said, you begin even matters of public policy with who is God and what has he done? And the only sure revelation of God is in Scripture. And the only sure revelation of what he has done is in Scripture. So when we cut ourselves off from Scripture, when we would think we could cut ourselves off from God and know things independent of God, that is really the temptation of the fall, isn't it? That God doesn't want you to be able to discern, discern and know right and wrong and good and evil, see? You can do it for yourself independent from and apart from God. The fact that we're unwilling to recognize this utter dependence on God is an evidence of how deeply the sin that's in us has scarred us. You see, that's what Blackstone was saying. He said, because we are wholly dependent creatures, we must in all points conform ourselves to the will of our Maker. And, and so we have to say, I am dependent upon knowledge from the one who is the source of all knowledge. And to cut myself off from him is to cut myself off from knowledge. 
So I wanted to pick up on that point, and now I want to move to the second part of today's program and bring this a little bit into our more contemporary experience. There's probably not uh, anybody in the United States who hasn't heard of Martin Luther King, even though they may not know much of what he did or who he is or what they may know has been uh, corrupted. And uh, of course, Martin Luther King was, was not in any way a, a perfect man, as none of us are. But he wrote a letter from the Birmingham jail in August of 1963 that talks about what he is doing with the sit-ins and the marches that were taking place in the South in regard to segregation in terms of what we've been talking about, the rule of law. And so if you're not familiar with that letter, let me take a few excerpts from it, read it, and comment on it. So the first thing that he says, and or one of the first things he says, is that those to whom he's responding, quote, express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. This is certainly a legitimate concern. Since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision of 1954 outlawing segregation in the public schools, it is rather strange and paradoxical to find us consciously breaking laws. Okay, we tell everybody you need to obey what the Supreme Court said. Separate but equal isn't any good, and I'm entitled to go to the local school without having to you know, be bussed around to some other place or something. And, and he said, but then we turn around and we break the laws uh, for, for who can go into a restaurant or a movie theater and so on and so forth. And so he says, uh, one may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? Great question. And in fact, just this past week, I was talking with, with a, a group of people and we were, we were trying to talk through some of how do we think about these vaccine mandates and mask mandates around the country and what's taking place. And somebody had written a theological article talking about the, the theology of whether mass mandates are really a religious liberty issue and so on and so forth. And one of, one of the persons in this circle said, well, you know, that's really great and that's academic and probably would have been a great discussion to have had 10 years ago. But right now, you know, we may be like our founding fathers who threw tea in the harbor, you know, and we just need to, to do that. And, and I didn't comment, but I want to say, well, they didn't do that as a first principle. You forget that, that there was a long period of prior to that called the First Great Awakening in which even the pulpits were, were teaching on principles of law and justice and liberty and those kinds of things that led to the fomenting that threw the tea in the harbor. You also forget that they had petitioned and petitioned over and over and over and not been heard. And so, in a sense, like Martin Luther King, who then called what he did with sit-ins and marches direct action to force people to confront the reality. Uh, we had some patriots throw the tea in the harbor. But the question then in both cases is, but was there an underlying principle, an underlying law by which direct action is justified and the call to obey some laws is appropriate and to disobey others is inappropriate? Now, let's move on to what he says. In answer to this question, how can you advocate you know, obeying some laws and not others, Martin Luther King writes, quote, The answer is found in the fact that there are two types of laws. There are just laws 
and there are unjust laws. Okay, remember what Blackstone said. Upon the law of nature and the law of revelation, the law of God, hang all the laws. And no human law is valid or entitled to contradict them if they're in contradiction to God's eternally mutable law. So, in accord with that, Martin Luther King says the same thing and continues on. Quote, I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Now, that doesn't mean in our modern day it's not been enacted by the legislature and it's on the statute books, but it's not law in the true sense of how our founding fathers or Augustine would have understood law because it is divorced from, separated from, God's eternal laws and immutable principles, and therefore it floats out there in the land of potential or injustice or injustice. So Martin Luther King continues on. So what is the difference between the two, the just and the unjust laws? How does one determine when a law is just or unjust? This is then how Martin Luther King answers that question. A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal and natural law. See, that's what the Supreme Court has done with respect to abortion and same-sex marriage. It has ignored those eternal immutable given laws to create a liberty that is outside the concept of what we understood liberty to be, to, to, to be able to move about from one place to another without prior restraint, without being deprived of that liberty, without due process of law, to say, no, I have a right to have somebody kill another person. I have a right to redefine what a marital relationship is. So Martin Luther King continues, any law that uplifts human personality is just. And any law that degrades human personality is unjust. Now, I want to stop right here for a moment because there are those who would say, for instance, a law that does not recognize transgenderism is one that is therefore unjust because it degrades human personality. But we have to understand that Dr. King and our founding fathers and Blackstone and all those who preceded him understood that there were givens, objective created realities regarding personality. They would have never said that personality chooses whether one is male or female. So Dr. King continues, all segregation statutes are unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. It gives the segregator a false sense of superiority and the segregated a false sense of inferiority. Remember how in the book of James it talks about the fact that God is no respecter of persons and he gets on the church there to whom he's speaking with saying you show preferences you, in essence, segregate within your congregation. Remember how the Apostle Paul attacked Peter when the Judaizers showed up, and all of a sudden, 
Peter decides he better start eating with the Judaizers and no longer eat with the Gentiles. Now, there indeed was a question of justification, but they established the principle that rightly understood God is not a respecter of persons, and to segregate and segment persons based upon qualities that God has given them is to deny the image of God is diverse and broad and was intended to reflect the vastness of the glory of God that man was intended to reveal, disclose, and manifest. So he continues on. He says this, so segregation is not only politically, economically, and sociologically unsound. Now, let's say some people can, can argue against those political, economic, or social policy arguments. That's going back to what we began the top of the program with. You know, can, can we know things from just our own experience and, and then be actually true and right and correct principles of eternal justice? But Dr. King continues on, but it is morally wrong and sinful. Sin is separation. Now, I would quibble a bit with Dr. King here to say sin is separation from God. But in our separation from God, we often then make wrongful separations between each other. And again, that's the part of the point that James was driving at in the book of James. So Dr. King continues, isn't segregation an existential expression of man's tragic separation, an expression of his awful estrangement, his terrible sinfulness. So, I can urge men to obey the 1954 decision of the Supreme Court because it is morally right. And I can urge them to disobey segregation ordinances because they're morally wrong. And then he goes on to point out that this principle of civil disobedience is even revealed in Scripture. He continues, Of course, there's nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was seen sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar because a higher moral law was involved. It was practiced superbly by the early Christians who were willing to face hungry lions in the excruciating pain of chopping blocks before submitting to certain unjust laws of the Roman Empire. And so I would say in summation today, the importance of Scripture cannot be gainsaid. We need the Scripture to know who God is and what He has done. We need the Scripture in order to interpret history and tradition. We need Scripture to clarify what our reason might otherwise tell us. And we need to recognize that all wisdom and all true knowledge ultimately comes from God and give Him the glory and the thanks and the praise for it. And we see that these things that we've been talking over the last several weeks are foundationally true. And we need to recover them in our own day because we have lost the rule of law and Christians have helped kill it by making 
Genesis 1 and 2 and the doctrine of creation, something that we pass over, we disregard, we think unimportant to what God has done. And today, Christians in particular, and our nation as a whole, is reaping what we've sown. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this series on the rule of law. And next week, I hope you'll join me for a new series I'm starting on the law of the United States. I don't know exactly what I'll title it, but what I have found in my experience is so few people understand the real true nature of our Constitution, its history, its provisions, how it should be understood and interpreted, the relationship between the branches of government, and the uh, relationship between the state and the federal governments and the states and the Supreme Court and the havoc that has been wrought upon our nation through the Supreme Court and its use of the 14th Amendment in ways that it was never intended to be used. So I hope that you will join me for this new series on God, law, and liberty. And I'll look forward to sharing that time with you. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.factennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.